2 Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and consider the instruction of Lord's Day 2. Remember that in question and answer 2 of the previous Lord's Day, we were asked, how many things were necessary to know so that we can enjoy our comfort, and there are three things, how great our sins and miseries are, how we may be delivered from those sins and miseries, and how we shall express our gratitude to God for this deliverance, and those three things end up being the three main headings that divide the Heidelberg Catechism. So we begin here with Lord's Day 2, the first part of the misery of man. Question 3 asks, Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 2 begins by making an assumption. And the assumption that it makes is that you and I are miserable. Notice that the question that it asks is not this, are you miserable? But the question is, how do you know that you are miserable? In other words, it's assumed that we are miserable and that we know this. And that's why we're looking for comfort. This is a warranted assumption on the part of the Lord's Day. We are miserable. That we are miserable is one of the few facts of human experience that just about everybody always agrees on. Go to a bookstore and pick up a popular book and likely you will find in that book a story about miserable characters who are on a journey to try to find happiness. Flip on the news and you will be fed a constant stream of misery coming not only from your local neighborhood but from the broader country and even the world. We live in a world where predators with sharp teeth and claws, hunt and devour their prey. We live in a world where good things fall to pieces, where beauty always ends up fading, where bodies deteriorate, and eventually we return to the dust, and our spirit returns to the hand of God who made us. Misery is a fact of life. In light of that universal experience of human misery, Lord's Day 2 has a clarifying purpose. See, it's easy to misidentify the true nature of human misery and our misery in particular. Because we see misery all around us in our environment, it's easy to think that misery comes from out there primarily. It's easy to think that we are miserable because there is crime because there are wars, because there is poverty, because there is illness, because there are problems out there in the world. And if we could just fix the things that are going on out there, then we wouldn't be miserable anymore. But the Lord's Day says, not so fast. It's true, all of those things do belong to our misery as we live in a fallen and broken world. Death, disease, illness, crime, it all belongs to our misery. But that's not how you know your misery, and that's not how you experience your misery, especially as a believing child of God. How do you know your misery? It's not by looking at your environment around you. You know your misery out of the law of God. Or, to borrow the expression of Paul in the chapter we read this evening, we know our misery by the letter, the letter of the law. That's the theme for the sermon this evening, misery made known by the letter. First, we will identify what the letter says, really what the letter is, and then what it says. And then, 
in the second place, what the letter does or what effect it has on us so that it reveals our misery. And then we'll conclude by noting why this is important. Why it's important for us in our search for comfort to know this. Misery made known by the letter. First, what the letter says. Second, what the letter does. Finally, why it's important. One of the most important stories in the Old Testament is the story of God giving his law to his people from Mount Sinai. And you remember that when God gave his law to his people on Mount Sinai, he handed it down in two tables, and it was engraved on those tables in stone. That's the letter. You'll notice that Paul makes a distinction in verse 6 between the Spirit and the letter, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills or killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Notice he makes a distinction there, but it's not a distinction between the Spirit and the law. That's significant. The point of the apostle here is not to say the law is bad and the spirit is good and therefore we have to make a distinction between the two. No, the spirit and the letter are both connected to the law. The law, which is the written word. So what does Paul mean by the letter? Well, the letter is a stand-in for the Old Testament administration of The covenant through Moses and through those books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's a lot that went into that Old Testament administration of the covenant. There were all those ceremonies and there were the requirements that God gave to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. But at the heart of it were those two tables of stone that God put in Moses' hands. And on the front of those two tables of stone, and on the back of those two tables of stone, and filling all of the spaces in between, were letters carved and engraved by God's own finger. When Moses came down from the mountain with his face shining, and those two tables in his hand, which two tables were eventually put in the Ark of the Covenant, he represented everything that Paul means when he speaks of the letter here in our chapter. Just to be clear about something for you children, the word letter can mean different things in the way we use that word today. So there's the kind of letter that you write on a piece of paper and you seal it in an envelope and then you put it in the mail with a post, postage stamp and you send it to somebody. That's one kind of letter. Then there's a letter where you take a pencil and you make a shape like the letter A, or the letter B, or the letter C. Those are the kinds of letters that Paul is talking about when he speaks of the letter, the letter that kills. He's talking about those letters. It wasn't an A or a B or a C. These were Hebrew letters. But they were the letters that were written on those tables of stone 
the letters that God's finger etched into those two tables of stone when he gave the Ten Commandments. The distinction between letter and the Spirit then tells us what Paul wants us to focus on here. Letters. What, what does that word letter make us think of? Well, written letters are fixed in place. So when you write a note with an ink pen on a piece of paper, you can't erase the letters. They're there. They're fixed. But now what if you take, instead of an ink pen and a piece of paper, a chisel and you write them into stone? That makes them even more fixed in place. In fact, you could go to Arlington Cemetery and you could read the names of soldiers who were killed in the Civil War 150 years ago and they're still there on their stone tombs. But now, what if it's not a man etching those letters into stone with a chisel and a hammer, but what if it's God's own finger writing those words into stone? Then they're even more permanent. Then you can even have the rock itself fading away and decaying as those stone tombs in Arlington eventually will. But the letter is still fixed because it's God's own word. If God declares that something is true and intentionally writes it down, it can't be lost. It's fixed. It's eternal. These letters tell us what God thinks, what God says. The letter, therefore, stands for the law of God as a hard and fixed standard of right and wrong. Now let me explain that word standard. Standard is a way to measure something. So if your children go to the fair this summer, your parents take you to the county fair, maybe you'll go to the ticket stand and you'll get tickets and you want to ride one of those rides but before he can go on to the ride, you have to face the attendant. The attendant standing there next to him is a ruler. And the ruler says you have to be this tall in order to go on this ride. That ruler is a, a fixed object that measures how high you must be in order to go on the ride. It's, it's a standard of measurement. Now, the law of God is a standard, but it's not a standard that measures how tall we are. It's a standard that measures how we behave. How do we know the right way to behave and the wrong way to behave? Why can we, as Christians in the church, say that it's wrong? It's wrong to kill a baby. Why can we say that? There's a lot of people in our country today who say it's not wrong. It's not always wrong. Sometimes it's right to kill a baby. What is the ruler or the standard that we can use to say, no, that behavior is wrong? It's always wrong. It's unequivocally wrong, absolutely wrong. And this behavior over here is right. Some people say the measuring rod is this. It's whatever works best for me. 
what works best for me might be something on this day, might be something else on a different day, but whatever makes me feel good, whatever works for me, that's the standard by which I will measure my behavior and the behavior of everybody around me. Other people say, no, it's not just what works for me as a single individual. It's what works best for the most people most of the time. Whatever keeps most of the people happy most of the time, that's the standard for right and wrong. But what that means, whether it's based on a single individual person or whether it's based on what works for most of the people most of the time, is that you can never really know what's right and wrong because people's opinions always change. Individuals' opinions change and whole groups of people's opinions change. That's not a letter. That's not etched in stone. That's not an eternal fixed standard. But the letter of God's law never changes. It's written in the rock. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it's really older than Moses and Mount Sinai. The letter of the law is what God always says is right and what God always says is wrong. The letter of the law simply puts into writing how God himself thinks and acts and speaks and behaves and then wraps it in language and with applications that apply to us as human beings. So why is it wrong to kill babies? Well, it's because God is a God who creates and gives life and only destroys life when there's good reason when it's authorized to do so. And he calls us to cherish and nourish the life that he creates and gives. There's a standard. And the standard isn't any individual person or even a group of people. The standard is God. And he wrote it down with letters. Now, more specifically, what do those letters say? What the letter of the law says is that it is our duty to live lives of perfect love. This is the whole duty of man. It is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what it says. I know it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you shall honor your father and your mother. It says all those things. But Jesus says what all of that means is love. Love is one of those interesting words that we use all the time but hardly ever take the time to define. What is love? Here's a working definition. Love is a conscious delight in another person that moves us to lay down our life for that other person. Love is a conscious delight in another person that moves us to lay down our life for that other person. This is how love is defined in the epistle of John, 1 John 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God and Literally, you could read it this way. Hereby perceive we love, or the love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is God's love. This is what love looks like, absolutely. 
It's when God laid down his life for us in Jesus Christ, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is a conscious delight in another person that moves us to lay down our life for that person. There's more to it than that. You could say a lot about what love is when we get to the section on the law in the, the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll, we'll work on that a lot more, but that's the essence of it. Now, the letter of the law doesn't just say love generally, but there's an object of our love. Who are we to love? We are to love God. Who is the person in whom we must take conscious delight? Is God. You must take conscious delight in God, and that conscious delight that you have in God must move you to take deliberate and costly action for Him. In other words, you must lay down your life, give everything that you are and everything that you have for God. That won't necessarily mean that you will have to take a bullet for God or that you'll have to go to the gallows for God, but it might mean that. But more important is that our love for God must be total, as Jesus says in Matthew 22. It's not that just, just that you love God sometime, it's that you love God all of the time. It's not just that you love God with part of you, it's that you love God with all of you. You love God with your whole heart, with all your thoughts, that are in your mind, with all of your feelings and all of your desires and all of your wishes and all of your dreams and all of your goals and all of your actions and all of your words, all of you, lay it down for God. That's what the letter says. And to be concrete about that so that we don't just say, I love God, who we can't see, The Bible says this is how you do that when you love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor must be the object of your love, which means you don't get to pick and choose who you will love and who you will not love, because your neighbor could be anybody. Your neighbor could be the person who lives in the house next door to your house. It could be the teller behind the cash register or the grocery store that you go to. Your neighbor could be somebody that you come across who you've never met before, but they're lying beat up and wounded in a ditch like the man in Jesus' parable whom the Samaritan helped. Your neighbor could be somebody who you are naturally and easily attracted to so that it's easy to delight in that person and to lay down your life for them. Or it could be somebody who you find repulsive and very difficult to delight in. But God says you must love your neighbor as yourself. And that does imply that there is a kind of love that we must have toward ourselves also. That's also part of the letter. You must have a love for yourself. There is a proper delight that we take in ourselves as good creatures who are made by God. And there is a way in which we lay down our lives for ourselves as we pursue the higher good. That's called self-denial. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he does, he's not teaching self-hatred. He's teaching us to love ourselves by denying the self-destructive impulses of the flesh. 
You love yourself by seeking the ultimate good of yourself, which is to know God and to love Him and to love your neighbor. It's very different from the kind of self-love that is promoted in the world today. But you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That person that you bump into on a daily basis isn't just some guy. It's a creature of God who has a soul that's going to live forever. You love that person when you take an interest in his or her welfare and you take concrete actions to pursue their welfare. You love that person when you think of what will benefit him or her before you think about what's going to make me feel good. You love that person when you find your own joy and happiness, most of all when you're seeking the joy and happiness of other people. And by doing that toward the neighbor, what you're really doing is loving God because the two are connected. If you love God truly, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor truly, you will love him or her for the sake of God. They're connected. That's why John says, if a man say, I love God, and then hates his brother, he's a liar. Because you can't love God whom you have not seen while going around hating your neighbor who you have seen. The two are connected. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what the letter says. Maybe that feels surprising to us. We hear letter of the law and we think long and bothersome checklist of do's and don'ts. We think ten commandments engraved in stone and handed down from a fiery mountain. We think scary. But what does the letter say? All it says is love. Love your God who made you and gave you everything that you have and love your neighbor who he created to be your companion. When you put it that way, maybe it feels like, well, this isn't so bad after all. I can do this. I can love God. I can love my neighbor. I can fulfill the letter of the law. But unfortunately, that's the trap that many fall into. That only leads to shame and guilt and death. Not because the letter is bad, but because of what the letter does when we are exposed to it. What the letter does, according to the apostles, it kills. Everybody who is exposed to the letter of the law is killed by it. That whole administration of the law in the Old Testament, Paul describes as the administration of death, verse 7. It is the ministration of death written and engraven in stones. Now that ministration of death was glorious. It was the revelation of the goodness and the glory and the righteousness and the truth of God. But it was the ministration of death. It was the ministration of condemnation that had at its center that fixed standard of the law written and engraven in stones. 
Think of the imagery that Paul uses in this chapter that he draws from the Old Testament, Exodus 32 and 33. There was that occasion when Moses asked God if he could see his glory. Show me your glory, Moses asked. And God replied, I will show you my glory, but I'm going to have to hide you in the cleft of a rock and hide you behind my hand. And when I remove my hand, you will see my hinder parts because no man can see my face and live. That's what happens when a man is confronted with the fullness of the glory and goodness of God. It undoes him. It kills him. No man shall see my face and live. But then, even with that little bit that Moses did see, the effect that it had on him was that his face began to shine with the glory of God. And then Moses went down from the mountain later with his face shining, and the children of Israel looked at the face of Moses, and they could not look at his, at his face, so they had to ask him, cover your face with a veil. We can't talk to you this way. Now what's the point of Paul in bringing this up? Well, what Paul is saying, what the Word of God is saying in this epistle, in this chapter, is even when we approach it indirectly, the glory of God is too much for us. Even the little reflection of God's glory that Israel saw in the face of Moses was too much for them. It burned out their eyes. It made it impossible for them to approach even the go-between man who was Moses, much less God himself. And the law is like Moses. It's like the glory and the righteousness of God himself is being reflected back to us in a mirror made of stone. And it's put under a veil. It's not God in all of his transcendent holiness and glory, but it's just a little reflection, just a little echo of him. But even that is too much for us. It kills us. That killing by the letter looks slightly different depending on the specific context according to which a man approaches the law and reacts to the law. For some, it kills them by turning them into legalists. That's who Paul has in mind in particular as he writes the words of this epistle. The Pharisees and the scribes thought that they could approach unto God by keeping the letter of the law. They thought that they could handle the requirements. They said to themselves, sure, I can love God. I can love my neighbor. I can keep those Ten Commandments. But all they really did is to put a veil over the law, meaning they diminished its true requirement. They brought it down to their own level. What they were really doing is saying, I don't actually have to love God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and all my strength. I can just love him by keeping these rules. Children, it would be like if you went to that ride at the fair and you took a saw and you cut off the top part of that ruler. And then you wrote on there, this is how high you have to be in order to go on the ride. Take the standard down to your level. 
But what have you really done? You've not kept the standard. You've only destroyed somebody's property that's not yours. For some, it kills them by turning them into legalists. For others, it turns them into hedonists. That's when a man responds to the law by just giving up. Oh, I can never reach that high standard. That's impossible, so why should I even try? That's like if you went to the fair ride and instead of messing with the standard, you just tried to sneak around the attendant and get on the ride without him noticing, without permission. Turn some into hedonists, some who just don't even bother to do anything with the law at all. But either way you look at it, the effect is death. The only knowledge that comes from facing the letter of the law is the knowledge that I don't measure up to it. I have to bring the standard down or I have to get rid of the standard because I understand I don't love God. (laughs) Not with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength. And all the times when I acted like I was loving God, it was really just a show. The person I was really loving was myself. My own desires and my own lusts. I don't love my neighbor. If I don't love God, I can't love my neighbor. And all the times I seem to love my neighbor, what I was really doing is using him as a backboard to get good feelings back to myself. The law condemns me. It is the ministration of condemnation, as Paul says in verse 9. Or you could say it's the ministration of damnation. It leaves me standing guilty. And if I'm guilty, I must pay. And what are the wages that I must pay? Well, the wages of sin is death. That's why Paul says the letter kills. To understand this correctly, we must understand why the letter has this effect. Because right now there's a temptation to say, well, there must be something wrong with the law then. The law must be evil. If all the law does is kill, if all the law does is to turn people into legalists or hedonists or self-righteous Pharisees, If all the law does is to spread guilt and shame and condemnation upon anybody who touches it or looks at it, what an evil and disgusting law. That law must be wrong. That law must be bad. But notice, if you fall to that temptation, what you actually end up condemning. You end up condemning love. Love is evil. Love is disgusting. Love is wrong. That is, love for anything other than myself. Because that's all the law says. Love God and love your neighbor. But you also end up condemning God if you condemn the law. Because the letter of the law is just writing down what God thinks and what God says and what God does. Which is why Paul never condemns the letter or the law in this passage, what he does is to call it glorious. The ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious. 
The ministration of condemnation was glorious. The letter of the law, which is done away in Christ, was glorious. You couldn't say anything else if you were standing there in the Old Testament looking at Moses. His face is shining with radiating light. It's glorious. The law is good if a man uses it lawfully, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The problem isn't with the law, and we may condemn the law or the letter of the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with those who look at those letters graven in stone and read them and understand them. You can't not understand what the law says, by the way, when you read it, because the law simply puts in writing what our own conscience is always telling us, which is, love the God who made this beautiful creation around you and who made you. Love the neighbor who was set by your side to be your companion. We read it. We understand it. We know what it means. And then we react. And what happens when we react? We do the opposite of what the law says. We say, I don't like this standard, so I'm going to saw it off, bring it down to a level I can attain unto. We say, that's impossible. What kind of a cruel monster would require this? He doesn't deserve my love. Oh, God says I should honor the authority figures he has placed over me in my life. Well, I'm going to smear their names in the mud instead because I don't like what they're telling me to do. Oh, God says I must be faithful to my spouse. Well, I'm going to make it seem like I do that outwardly, but my eyes are going to be all over the men and the women that I see out there on the street. Oh, God says I must labor faithfully and give to the poor. Well, I'll ease my conscience by sliding a little into the benevolent fund, but in the end, I'm going to view my money and my possessions as my stuff. It's my stuff, and I'll do what I want with it. Those are just some examples. And the point is to illustrate what the catechism means by prone. It says, Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? And the answer is no, in no wise. For I'm prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. What does that word prone mean? Prone is when you take a slide and you grease it with oil and then you ride on it. There's only one direction you're going to go, and it's down. That's our nature. That's what comes out of our heart when it's exposed to the law. It's prone. It goes down. It rebels. It reacts against the law. And the more that law becomes clear to us, the more we become conscious of it, the more we react that way. The problem isn't the law. The problem is us. The law is simply a a tool that exposes what's inside of us and then condemns it. 
Now, why is that important? It's important on the one hand because it shows us where we will never find comfort. It shows us where we will never find an answer to our misery. We will never find comfort by trying to keep the letter of the law. Isn't it ironic? This is the solution that we always run to, almost by instinct. Oh, I feel guilty because I did that wrong. I said that wrong thing. I had that wrong thought. I'm going to try harder next time. And when I try harder next time, then I won't feel guilty anymore because I'm going to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. If I work harder at the law next time, then I will find comfort. Then I will absolve my conscience by my law-keeping. I don't remember where I heard this line before, but it fits for this situation, which is the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And that's what it is. It's insanity. You cannot work harder and harder and harder at the law expecting anything other than more guilt, more shame, more death. That's what the law does. It kills. We will never find comfort in our misery either by turning to self-fulfillment. We acknowledged earlier there is such a thing as proper self-love. But there's also such a thing as self-idolatry. Turning ourselves into gods. As in, I will be the lawgiver. I don't like God's law, so I will be my own standard of laws. I will fulfill myself by deciding what's best for me. The problem with making yourself into a God is that you're a God who can't save yourself. The God of self is a God that might make you feel good for a while, but he can't save you. All he can do is lead you off into death and condemnation according to the letter of the law. There's no comfort in self-fulfillment. Don't turn there. Don't fall prey to the lie of our age that happiness and comfort comes by fulfilling your dreams. Don't fall prey to the deception that comfort depends on keeping and fulfilling the requirements of the law. It's going to leave you miserable. The importance, on the other hand, is that the law creates the necessary backdrop for the Spirit. You see that in the chapter? The ministration of death by the letter of the law was glorious, but how much more glorious is the ministration of the Spirit who gives life? That doesn't mean the old is bad or wrong. What it means is that the new is better and really is the fulfilling of the old, which now passes away. It is the fulfilling of the old, and it is more glorious, first of all, because the letter 
of the law creates an outline, as it were, that is fulfilled by Christ. That's why we don't need the veil anymore, Paul says. We can look at all the revelation of God, including the law, with open faces. We don't need a veil anymore. We don't need to obscure the shining of that glory because we see Christ, and we see Christ coming, loving God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, and we see him loving his neighbor. And who is the neighbor whom he loves, beloved? That's you, and that's me, and that's his people. And he loves us for God's sake. He delights in us, and he calls us his friends, even though we acted like his enemies. And we see him laying down his life in that delight that he has in us, denying himself, taking on the mantle of a servant, and going even to the death of the cross. And there we see the fullness of the grace and the glory and the mercy and the righteousness of God revealed. We see it by the Spirit that that same Jesus Christ, now risen and ascended, pours out in us. The Spirit shines the light of Christ on our hearts from the inside so that as we behold Christ in the revelation of God, instead of a proneness to go into evil, we're drawn to Him, drawn to His beauty, drawn to His glory, drawn to His goodness, drawn to His glory. And that glory changes us into the same image of Christ from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The law and gospel are not the same. They are distinct. The letter and the Spirit are not the same. They are distinct. But the importance of the law, the letter of the law, and the knowledge that it gives of our misery is that it leads us to Christ. You cannot understand or appreciate who Jesus Christ is without facing the letter of the law. You just can't. But by facing it, and then being led by the Spirit to the ministration of righteousness and grace, well, that changes things. And now we live not by the letter, but by the Spirit. And even the law itself takes on a new character. We begin to love that law. And we say that it's glorious. So it's important. As painful as it may be, to have that law come down in its letter and point its finger at us and expose the ugliness that's inside us and condemn us even as painful as that is, it's important. It's because only then do we understand who Jesus Christ is and what the Spirit has given to us to do with the power of the gospel to change us into the same image from glory to glory. So we say, as we're going to sing in a minute, not I hate the law because it makes me feel bad, but I love that law. I love that law for leading me to Jesus Christ.
And I love that law is what I want to do now. I want to keep that law in the future through the power of the grace of the gospel. And we're going to get there in the catechism too. But here, beloved, know your misery. Know its importance. And then flee to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for exposing us to this truth. Even though it's painful to our flesh, even though it humbles us and exposes what's inside us as nothing but ugliness and death, that we're thankful for it. This is thy grace to us, not to leave us in our delusions, not to leave us in our self-centeredness and self-idolatry, but to lead us to Christ. Pray, O oh Father, let us never shy away from being exposed to the rays of that law so that we may be led ever deeper into the knowledge of deliverance in Christ and that we may be changed into the same image as him from glory to glory as we live not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.